1: Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Carolyn Eichner about Feminism's Empire, out with Cornell in 2022. She is a professor of history and women's and gender studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. This is her third book. Surmounting the Barricades, Women in the Paris Commune came out in 2004, and the Paris Commune a brief History came out in 2022. That means Feminism's Empire is her second book this year. Color me impressed. Uh, furthermore, Surmounting the Barricades, Women in the Paris Commune was published in French as Franchir les Barricades, Les Femmes dans la Commune de Paris, published by Edition de la Sorbonne in 2020. Translated by Bastien Crepin, uh, it is a, It was a finalist for the Prix augustin Thierry in 2021, an award from the city of Paris for a historical study concerning the period between antiquity and the late 19th century. But wait, there's more. This year, she'll be a Fulbright research scholar in France and will be in residence at the Camargo Foundation in beautiful, stunning Cassis. I am so very, very jealous. (laughs) Uh, Professor Eichner, Carolyn, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. But perhaps I should say welcome back, as our brilliant colleague, Roxanne Panchisi, had you on the New Books in French Studies channel earlier this year. So welcome back.
2: Thanks very much, Mike. And thank you for that lovely and generous introduction.
1: And, and, and I really am going to tell you, I am so jealous of the Camargo Foundation. Um, I, uh, when I was a graduate student, one of my, in en Provence, one of my uh, joys was to take the bus over to Cassis and swim in the Calonk. And, mm. oh, it's so gorgeous right there. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty thrilled about it. Plus, plus. You'll do fabulous intellectual work, but it's also really beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> so before we get into feminism's empire, um, would you please tell us a bit about yourself? I know you earned your PhD at UCLA, but um, how, how did you come to French history and, and what drew you to the history of the commune, to women's history, and now French feminist in the French colonial empire and, and New Caledonian history as well?
2: Well, um, I had a slightly unusual path to um, French history, to any history. My undergraduate degree is in finance, uh, which
1: I disliked. In finance? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, so you you didn't want a real job.
2: I I just, I didn't didn't know what I was doing. Um, I thought I had to have some sort of practical degree and have some sort of, you know, practical career. I actually thought that I could, you know, make money and then help people. It was a bizarre approach to, uh, some kind of, I just didn't know, uh, what route to take. So I got the degree in finance, but I really hated it. So I worked in marketing and I I hated that too. And, um, and so my mother who was wonderful and supportive, you know, saw I was miserable and said, what would you do in a perfect world? And I said, study history. And I really didn't even know what that meant, but I, um, I went to uh, Northern Illinois University, where I had gone for my undergrad, and um, you were a husky. um, Yes, I was. Yes, yes, and uh, and I've got I've got 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 a a good
1: buddy buddy there, Eric Jones, uh, who does Southeast Asian history and uh, runs runs a podcast out of there too, two podcasts. So anyway, I'm, I'm well familiar with NIU.
2: It was a wonderful place for me. It was amazing, and. Um, I worked with uh, Bill Bike and, uh, Harvey Smith and Mark, um, uh, I can't remember her name. That's terrible. Anyway. Um, but, uh, it, it was a wonderful and supportive place and I got my master's and then they said, you have to, they suggested that, um, I go elsewhere for my PhD, you know, my, um, bachelor's and master's. And so I, I went to UCLA and, um, By then, I had already, at NIU, I discovered the Paris Commune. I discovered um, French history. I I came to it with an interest in um, feminism, and that was, you know, I was raised a feminist, and um, I had no connection to France, though. But as soon as I had a course on 19th century Europe and learned about French revolutions, I was drawn to the Commune and thought, you know, there must've been some sort of women involved in this and that was that sort of launched me. And so then UCLA, um, I, you know, stuck with that for my dissertation, um, my interest in feminist history and, uh, and my book on my first book is the barricades is French feminisms in the Paris commune. And so the, 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 idea of feminisms, the, the multiplicity of feminisms that existed in 19th century France is something that has consistently uh, woven through my work. And, uh, as I was doing the commune work and finishing the commune work, the, the, the first book on the commune. Um, and I was thinking about race and, um, and the fact that the empire was, you know, a significant, increasingly significant thing. And so that's what then shifted me to think about imperialism and to think about the intersections of feminism and imperialism and feminism and anti-imperialism. And that's, uh, and that's how I, I landed there. And then I, um, as I'll, you know, I'll talk about a, in, in a little bit about how I selected these feminists. That, that That's how I ended up with New Caledonia.
1: I, yeah, I fantastic. And, yeah, and um, I mean, there, there's one figure that links that, but we'll, we'll be talking about her. And one of the things I really appreciated about um, your book and, and something you just alluded to is putting these um, important concepts in the plural. So Mm -hmm. not French feminism, but feminisms, that there's a variety of approaches. And the same thing with socialism and um, even the different forms of imperialism. So there's not one sort of uniform category there. And I thought that came up really, really well in the book. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. perhaps you give us a a quick sort of definition or, or sort of like a sense of how you conceive of women's history and maybe say a few words about how you use, um, gender as an analytical tool.
2: Well, I, I consider myself a a historian of of women and gender and, um, I, I don't uh, separate them out. Um, because I think it's, you know, they're fundamentally integrated and, um, and that the field has evolved, you know, historically. <laughs> we don't really have time for me to give that that history here, but um, gender, I think, is a fundamental analytical tool for understanding everything, and uh, particularly power, which kind of equates with everything in many ways. Um, uh, looking at gender roles and gender relations, um, looking for gender, there's gender within, you know, larger <clears throat> excuse me, institutions, structures. There's gender in politics, language, education, religion, families, law. I mean, gender pervades, and um, and to understand history or uh, I think any other um, social science or humanities, one has to to use gender as an analytical tool. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And I'm um, I'm gonna do a little bit of self promotion and give it, uh, a little shout out to. Um, uh, Karen Offen, who I did a podcast with, um, just a few weeks ago who, uh, played an important role in, in developing French women's history as a field. Um, so you can go into the new books archive and, uh, and find the Karen Offen podcast. Um, and I, and I, you just told me she was one of your mentors too.
2: Yes. Yes, she was. Yes. And, and, and I listened to your uh, podcast and it was wonderful.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, she, she was wonderful. Um, so, um, would you quickly introduce the five women that you profile in the book? Um, many listeners will know Louise Michel and Ebertine um, but maybe not as familiar with uh, Olympe uh, Audouard, excuse my pronunciation, uh, Leonie Ruzad, and Paul Mink. Um, how, could you do a quick introduction and, and maybe tell us how you came to pick these five individuals before we start going through the arguments in the book?
2: Sure, sure. I think to to make sense of it, first I think I'll, I'll give you like – kind of the thesis of the book. And, um, and so that uh, is, you know, how sort of explains also how I picked the five individuals. So um, they, I was looking for the first feminists in the latter 19th century to um, engage, not only engage with empire, to travel into empire, to, you know, just fully engage um, in that way. And so, and that means physically or literarily, because with one Leonie Hussard, as I'll explain, she wrote um, an, novel about uh, about imperialism um and and i was doing this because i w- wanted to see you know as i mentioned a little bit before the the role of feminism in imperial and ideas of of imperialism and anti-imperialism the role of race in feminisms and also as as it developed uh questions of whiteness which i wasn't thinking about when i really started this because this book took a while um and then and questions of whiteness and so um these feminists were amongst the first of third republican leftists to cr- critique empire and and again this is not something i knew, i recognize coming into it um, but you know despite they had they were they adhered to very different feminisms as i'll explain so different and often conf- conflicting fl- feminisms but the the key factor was that they were feminists and this feminism led them to critique empire before most anyone else on the left. So not just feminism, but anyone on the left, including socialists and anarchists. And um, I argue that these feminists are attuned to the structures and practices of uh, control and exploitation. And they all sought change within and beyond the metropole. They all critiqued existing empires but and this is really key: they did not critique all critique imperialism per se, and some you know sought to transform ideas of imperialism for their own ends and develop feminist imperialisms. So all of their anti-imperialisms expo- oppose exploitation, but they don't all oppose imperialism. And none of their oops, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 none no, no. no
1: don't mean to interrupt. Please okay. continue.
2: Just going to say one other key thing is that none of their anti-imperialisms were absolute. So this is real. And this is a really central thing that there, there's a clear binary between being pro-imperial and anti-imperial in this uh, period, I think, is just impossible.
1: So. Is is this comparable to sort of a, um, a a vulgar understanding of Marx on imperialism? That while, you know, he in his writings on India, he says he detested uh, the British Empire and it's um, self serving and uh, and ignorant, yet was a mechanism for a force uh, of history that would move history forward. That it would that it, despite all its evils, it would bring. India and China into a level of industrialization is it is there maybe kind of an uh, an analog there?
2: Yeah, I think there could be. I mean, um, none of them are Marxists, um, but they but there is something analogous about this idea of seeing that like in imp- the idea of empire, the idea uh, that that comes with a sense of um, the superiority of. Europe of enlightenment talk really of of europeanness and of, and of whiteness um i mean that's and again that's i'm speaking really broadly here because one thing i really want to be specific about is the the differences amongst these feminists and the different feminisms and feminists and the differences between the imperial context but yeah yeah this like like sort of you know well, the way that imperialism is being done now is wrong for this reason or that reason, but maybe there's something in it that we can uh, use to better things.
1: Right, right. You know, it makes me sort of uh, think about recent conversations about liberal imperialism and liberal interventionism um, that uh, that don't <laughs> don't maybe question the overall power structure, but um, yeah. And, and this group of women have a a pretty wide range of um, political um, ideologies and identities, correct? Right.
2: Yes, exactly. And then, you know, as you asked, but then I slightly diverted, sorry, um, (laughs) to, to, you know, sort of within that that larger context, I think then that the, this might make some more, more sense about um, the differences amongst these feminists and feminism. So, they coincidentally fall on a range from far left to right with right being kind of center, center, right. Um, and you know, this is a kind of a lovely coincidence for me because it allowed an analysis of the range of the periods feminisms. Um, and, and it was truly a coincidence, but so Louise Michel, who is, undoubtedly the most widely known of these feminists. Um, and you know who is probably the most well-known person uh, who participated in the Paris Commune and who I actually uh, wrote very little about in my book on women in the Paris Commune, because historically she was the only woman who anyone paid any attention to in the Commune as though she, she embodied all of, um, communard womanhood, and, and and that basically erased the incredible variety and subtleties of um, communard feminisms and socialisms and anarchisms. So uh, there is a little bit of an irony that I now focus so much on her, but um, she was a revolutionary anarchist feminist. And she is this she, she was really appropriated by the French Communist Party in the, in the 20th century as this sort of image of, of she's, she's often called the Red Virgin, which I find uh, more than slightly offensive that she's you know, reduced to this idea that she was married to the revolution. Um, but uh, Michelle's a theorist, a linguist, she was an ethnographer, a novelist, a poet, an artist, an educator, um, she was quite brilliant. Um, and she's also a self-identified anti-imperialist. And uh, she and Paula Mink, the woman I'll speak with next, speak, speak with, speak about next, were the two that were self-identified anti-imperialists, which is a a really rare thing in this early third republic, especially. And, um, and her anti-imperialism came out of her experience in New Caledonia. She was, sent to the French prison colony in New Caledonia uh, with 4,500 other communards um, as punishment after the commune, 25 women out of 4,500 prisoners. And, uh, And then late in her life, she also went to Algeria, which was, she had met the Algerian Kabil who had risen up against the French at the same time as the commune and were also sent to the prison colony in New Caledonia and she promised she would travel to Algeria to help their uh, anti-imperial cause. She did that uh, at the very end of her life. The trip basically killed her. So yeah, when she was 70, in her seventies. And then Paul Mank, who's a Revol- so, so moving from uh, left to a little tiny bit less left. Um, uh, Paul Mank, who's a revolutionary socialist feminist. Um, so again, she's, she's, Repo- she's not a Republican. She is a revolutionary and um, she's also a communard uh she and after uh, in the decades after the commune she and michelle often traveled uh and spoke together um ad- trying to agitate uh a- another commune basically another revolution so mink was a well-known and dramatic orator a journalist um and uh also a self-identified anti-imperialist and she traveled to algeria in 1884 to an anti-imperialist anti-capitalist anti-religion um, Propaganda tour. And then Leonie Roussade and Hubertine Auclair are both Republican socialist feminists. So they support the idea, they see the Republic as an ideal form, but they believe that France has never come close to attaining that ideal form. Maybe it came close in the revolution, but um, they sought the true republic, a social republic, and their, their politics are similar. So Léonie Rouzade is the one of these five feminists who did not physically travel into empire. But she was a novelist and she uh, literarily traveled into empire and used the imperial form um, to critique patriarchy and also to critique existing Empires, and I look specifically at her book *Le Monde Reversé*, which was kind of a science fiction-y, futurist um, piece. And then Hubertine Ocler, who's also, I think, fairly well known as the head of the women's suffrage movement in France in the late 19th century. Um, so she was also she was a journalist um, and uh, a suffragist and. She had a newspaper, La Citoyenne, which the main goal was advancing women's uh, legal civic rights. And um, she was she and her journalists, who included both male and female fem- feminists, were interested in empire and uh, goings on well beyond France. And that really escalated when she moved to Algeria um, with her uh, husband um, and uh, and then became very very interested in questions of gender and empire. And then finally Baudois, who is a, was a liberal monarchist feminist, and she was a well, really well known journalist, editor, and travel writer. Her travel writing, her books went into. She's the only travel writer amongst these. You know, they all travel, but she's the only one who's a travel writer. Um, Her books went into multiple editions and uh, there were reviews in uh, English uh, journals, um, novelist order. Uh, She's critical of the French, French imperialism, but again, not imperialism per se. She thought that France was not worthy of being able to imperialize. She really thought, I mean, she was very Catholic and really she adhered to all social, all hierarchies except gender. And she traveled to Turkey, Egypt, the American West, Jerusalem, Algeria, Russia, um, and uh, it was you know, very clearly the most conservative of them.
1: Yeah, what, what uh, for the the non specialists in nineteenth-century France? What, what 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 is a liberal monarchist? Is this an Orleanist? Is this sort of spirit of eighteen thirty or?
2: Yes, yes, that's ex- she's exactly and an Orleanist. She she thought that. Um, the republic was just that france was incapable of being her vision of republicanism she thought that it was kind of a the, the the later catholic idea of what what a republic is which was very very conservative but she thought that france i mean she was particularly you know she she abhorred the paris commune and she you know I guess you could say she held it against France, but even before, you know, before that, during the, um, the second empire, she remained monarchist, but she had liberal politics in the cl- the very classic sense of liberalism. And, you know, she didn't rule out republicanism again. So it's, you know, I think a liberal monarchist, I mean, it, it, thank you for asking that because it definitely requires some definition and it's, uh, you know, it this, this idea of classical liberalism, the um you know satisfaction with class uh hierarchies, it, in general race, racial hierarchies, um, but not gender hierarchy.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and one of the things that I think uh she also um uh can illustrate is the um still the, the incredible political diversity within France in the first couple of decades of the Third Republic um, that I think non-French historians say, okay, well, you know, they, they established a republic in 1870 and okay, shows over, uh, you know, and it's been republics ever since then with the little, little Vichy uh, issue. Um, but there's a, it's it's not a a settled issue in the 1870s 1880s. I mean, it's it's still hotly contested, and there are a huge variety of uh, political visions that are that are competing. And it's what well, really not till like the late 1780s that the republic really starts to get its footing. Would you absolutely. say absolutely?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, really, the 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 1870s especially were just it, there was no clear idea that the republic was going to hold. And, um, and 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 that's and, and you know, monarchism and multiple different uh, political uh, uh, forces were contesting for power, and that was that was it was it was not a stable republic into the eighties. Um, and so so yeah, thank you for pointing that out. So you know, I mean, I, fo- I, I focused on the, the, the multiple feminisms and then also the multiple socialisms, but it went you know the, that that word multiple could really um, span the ideological spectrum in terms of the French political landscape
1: absolutely and 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 I, what i enjoyed um you know having read so much you know third republican politics over the years is in inserting these different feminist political perspectives into this uh this ferment which um most of what i've read since graduate school was focused more on men and the um politics as, um, the domain of these third Republican men, you know, um, and, uh, Jules Ferry and the others. And here, here are uh, voices, uh, from those who are politically excluded yet playing a very prominent role in challenging, um, these basic definitions, political definitions of what France can be and should be. Um,
2: yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, I, I, I I really think that you can't fully understand the historical context if you um, don't try to remedy the way that, uh, I mean, they, they're, they're, this, these women, their politics, these ideas were basically written out of history. And so it's not a question of just sort of pulling them back and like, Oh yes. I mean, Oh yes, they did this. They did that. But it, Fundamentally alters our understanding once you recognize that gender politics, in its various forms, was integral to socialist, to anarchists, to monarchists, to to all of these different political forms. It's it's otherwise it's um it's kind of of an aberration of uh, of what had happened. You know the 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 version that, that comes down to us.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I I found this book to be just a fantastic contribution to that argument and really widening my understanding of um, uh, French politics in this time period. So um, before we get into the the various arguments um, in the different chapters, um, could you say a few words on your source material for the book? Um, Use a wide range of sources. Um, uh, Tell us a bit how you worked through the archives and libraries and what sort of um, uh, sources you pulled from.
2: Sure. Um, I uh, I worked on this book for a long time. I mean, I you know you mentioned I had another book come out this year, and I, I it, it I worked on it on and off, and then uh, and while that's not always the best idea, um, it did allow me to um get to a lot of archives and to to really get to to a lot of sources, and um you know I did the majority probably of the, war, of the work was at the Bibliothèque Historique de la Ville de Paris, the, the, city, the his, um, historical library of the city of Paris, the BHVP, where Ubertino Clerc's papers are, and just there, there's, there are many, many of the journals that I, I uh, the newspapers that I used um, are there. There's also the Bibliothèque Marguerite de which is the uh, feminist library in Paris, which is an extraordinary, incredibly invaluable collections. But Louise Michel's papers are at the International Institute of Social History in Amsterdam. They're now digitized. They weren't when I was (laughs) using them at first. Um, And then some of the, you know, the the, classic, I was at you know, the the Bibliothèque Nationale, the National Library, the National Archives, the National, the the overseas archives in Aix-en-Provence had pretty substantial uh, material for uh, Algeria and for New, uh, New Caledonia, and then um, I was in New Caledonia and did research in the archives and some libraries there, um, also. Um, and uh, so there's you know pretty substantial, and then and then in the you know and uh, there, was also, there was also quite a few um, digitized, especially uh, newspapers from the period, in, in in recent years, which has been you know very helpful and. And then, um, for the specific feminists, uh, Louise Michel uh, and Olympe uh, Baudouard published a lot. Hubertino Claire's uh, newspaper, La Citoyenne, was an extraordinary source. And then the police archives. I did a, a lot of work in the police archives. Because these women were seen as very dangerous characters, police spies followed them, especially, especially Michel and Mink um, throughout their lives. And uh, that provides an extraordinary source. I mean, one has to look at that with the recognition of uh, the the judgment and perspective of the people making the observations. The police spies that literally waited outside of their doors, and um, but then attended their talks and you know took notes on them. Sometimes very detailed notes, but always with a. You know, there's a commentary on what they looked like. And, you know, and it was always you know denigrating and sexist and, you know, think, saying things like, you know, her forehead was large and she had bad hygiene, you know, I mean, this sort of, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, literally, literally. And So, you know, again, you have these sources like that and where you have to, you know, read between the lines and recognize the, the, the source of the source. But, um, mm-hmm. And and then there's you know, some... it, it
1: sounds like some of those you wouldn't even have to read between the lines are sort of hitting you over the head with it,
2: <laughs> right, right, right. But then at the same time they might be then saying you know she gave yeah. a talk on you know the uh, the crimes of France and Algeria and you know and then they're they're giving you this information, but then you also have to think it's like okay. I, uh, how do I read this information? You know, in, in, in many ways, they, they may be reporting it as saying it's shocking that she's so critical, but you know, for me, it's like, okay, she was critical. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. Great. And then, you know, a, a sort of vast array of um, sources on French imperialism, on French feminisms and uh, on uh, empires beyond France and, uh
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, let's, let's get into the book. Um, tell us about, uh, chapter one, um, ideologies and intimacies of imperialism.
2: Okay. So, um, the introduction in chapter one, um, especially the first part of chapter one really sort of lay things out in terms of, uh, you know, what's, uh, what I'm going to be talking about. And it, uh, you know, but chapter one lays out the landscape of French feminisms and their interrelationships to imperialism. So, so really, you know, explain the different uh, feminisms and then also introduce the feminists and talk about the relationships amongst the ideologies and the people. And um, so, and I'm really emphasizing the importance of re-examining mid to late 19th century French imperialist history, you know, with, the inclusion of multiple feminisms as a, a way to, of, of better understanding a power matrices, really. And um, it gives us a, a gendered lens to better understand, you know, power, power relationships in both metropo- the metropole and colonies. And so, you know, I talk about how um, that for feminists, uh, ideologies and embodied experiences in empire shape their imperial critiques. And uh, so, you know, give the kind of the context, the specific context um, into which they traveled. Um, if feminists, French feminists, they're in the in the metropole. They're marginalized already by their politics and by their gender. And then, as they travel into empire, they're privileged as elite white women in colonial spaces but they're also othered. And so they have these particular perspectives. And what these women did was in, in different ways that they used this other perspective to try to redefine Frenchness. They tried to develop a different for each of them, a, a kind of Frenchness that was, um, it, they had a greater gender equity and in some cases, greater racial uh, equity, depending on, on the, the, the feminist. And um and I, and I talk about the the idea of, of intimacy. You know the titles, you know, this chapter's ideologies and intimacies of imperialism. And I think about intimacy not just as you know sexual, but physical, and emotional proximity, right? So the quotidian interactions uh, and physical violence, regimes of control. I mean, the intimacy that that is something that I think is um, an important way of understanding the imperial context, the colonial context experience of of people under uh, colonialism. And these feminists are observing this and critiquing it and influenced it. And so it's this sort of co-constitution that's influencing them and they are trying to influence their context as well as France. But they're also experiencing the intimacy of being in empire. And sometimes it is very uncomfortable for them. And that's when we especially can kind of see this, like, you know, window into their ideas of propriety or um, uh, elite deference. Um, uh, And this chapter then also looks at the way, so so when these women are, are, are in these imperial contexts, they're looking at different kinds of institutions and structures as ways of comparing it to France as a way to try to change France. And so this chapter talks specifically about the way that they looked at women's social and sexual standings. And and for this, it, specifically when uh, this is Odois, the most conservative, and then Mink, the revolutionary um, socialist, France came out better in these contexts, whereas when we get talking about chapter two, where um, I'm talking about different kind of categories that they, they analyze, France comes up short. But... Odward goes to the American West. She um, has an absurdly idealized uh, idea of, of of white America, which is in which you know men and women are equal. There is no, it's safe for women to be anywhere. There's no basically no sexual violence, um, and that um, you know whiteness will triumph over uh, Indians. And she really denigrates Indians. So it's a really and brutal, racist which,
1: kind of thing. Yeah. And was she the one who had this rather uh, um, startling view of American slavery? That um, yes, the very nostalgic, and that uh, <laughs> there there was an order. Yes,
2: yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes, and, yeah. and that's yeah. you know, that's that in, the, in the in the next chapter. I don't want to like it's yeah. sort of okay. weird to right. stick, but 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 right. absolutely, this is this was her over reliance on law and know, I talk about law and the, and the focus on law and the way that they saw that if you could change law, then this is for the, the, the because she's a liberal um, monarchist and she really, really puts a lot of weight on law. She sees miscegenation law in the United States because before she traveled, she ex- would study law codes in place. And she sees miscegenation law. So she says, okay, so white men can't touch black women, including enslaved women. And so when she's comparing Married white French women who are living under the Napoleonic Code, which is you know a law code that uh, married women had the, the same rights as a child, a minor child, and had no bodily uh, autonomy. Um, it is an intensely patriarchal and misogynist legal code in France for specifically for married women. She's saying that enslaved black women have more bodily autonomy and freedom because after they work in the uh, fields that can go, as she said, back to their hut and no one can touch them. Right. So it's, it is shocking. It is shocking. And, and, but it is really, she, she relies on the law and her, this idealized sense of, of whiteness. she's especially, especially for Yankees, but even for Southern whites.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Um, So that's, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that I, um, uh, we just want listeners to know that the, you know, the, the books divided into six chapters and, um, the, the five women we talked about, uh, play various roles at different points in the chapters. Um, so they, uh, they sort of come in and out, uh, uh according to your, uh, your analysis. Um, so what, um, what do you argue in chapter two? We've already alluded to some of this. Uh, this is, uh, the chapter sex, love, and the law transforming Frenchness.
2: Okay. Thanks. It, so this looks at feminists who focus on on law as a way of trying to reconceptualize Frenchness. So as they're reading about or experiencing living in imperial context, they are comparing it to the French legal system. And as I you know, briefly explained, the Napoleonic Code, and this, which looms large. So for, for feminists in France, this tends to be a big focus, the, the, the law code, but then they compare it in other contexts. Importantly, there's a greater focus on the law, the more moderate the class politics of the woman. So, um, Louise Michel, not interested. She's just not interested. She is a revolutionary. She thinks, you know, we just need to get rid of all of it. And in general, Paul Mink also is a revolutionary socialist feminist, but her um, story with law is a bit more complex. And then at, at the on the farthest right, you know, Odoi, she really sees the law as, as maintaining white authority and um, protecting white civilization. And you can really see this when she's in the American West. Um, so, the different you know feminists have you know different politics, different goals, but the their what this chapter talks about is the way that their interests intersect in law and the judicial regulation of intimacies you know as well as relationship between the state and traditional practices and women's lives so again so so michelle is really not part of this chapter because this is not her concern but i really saw this focus on these specifically these three sites marriage women's legal status and polygamy and um this is you know about patriarchal law and power relations, and they're comparing it with the Napoleonic Code. So ge- marriage is you know obvious, right? It's like it's gendered, social, sexual, economic, and legal construct. So it makes sense that feminists are interested in it. If, with um, you know Odois, you, you the example we talked about for um, when she was in the United States with enslaved Black women comparing their uh, bodily autonomy and freedom to married French women and. Uh, Rosade in her novel, Le, Le Mont-Renversé, Le, Le Mon she inverts the Napoleonic code, like literally to to say, you know, quote, man owes obedience to women. And um, she inverts everything and, you know, it, to, to shed light on um, patriarchal inequity because everyone is just shocked at like, how could people live like this? And it's, it is indeed how women live. So, um, and then... Um, Eau Claire, uh, writes about, um, how marriage is an economic disaster for, for French women. And then she also looks at marriage in, in, in colonial context. Um, and then, uh, the idea of women's legal status, um, you know, sort of more broadly, Odouard talks about how Turkey allows paternity suits, whereas France does not. Um, the late and brilliant Rachel Fuchs wrote a lot about that, um, in France. And, uh, and Edouard idealizes certain in the way that O'Douard idealizes certain aspects of American law and custom and life. She does something similar in the Turkish context, um, and this is especially because she she is really operating in elite circles and says that women live so well in Turkey because you know she's invited into the elite harems, etc. Uh, but then, but but for the legal the legal um, part, it's really this kind of a she says there are paternity suits there, and not in France. O'Clair looks at um, the Tuareg people in North Africa and how they are uh, matriarch matriarchies, and she really um, puts that as a an ideal for uh, for France to follow, which is pretty fascinating. I thought.
1: Yeah, and th- and what I was really struck by was your discussion of um, another. Uh... That that's white and the, the Mormons and yeah. the discussion of polygamy and Mormonism. And is it that, 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 that engages Mormon polygamy?
2: Yes. Yes. Cause yes. this is where she, where she, you know, she talks about yeah. being in the kingdom of the Mormons. Yes. Yeah. And she says, you know, the Mormons have polygamy and they, literally, of course, own up to it. It's part of what they do. And that the French really have a kind of polygamy, but it's not recognized that you are, uh, it's more of a social polygamy that men may marry a woman, but then they have lovers, uh, mistresses, but at least the Mormons, as, as she said, have to, she says, give the, the woman you know, shelter, money and their name and, you know, recognize them. And so she's using this again, this is, that's a great example of how they used these contexts, you know, this, this, the colonized American West as a way of saying that this is a way that France could, you know, improve. And she's not suggesting that there's legal, pol- you know, polygamy because polygamy is something that they uh, uniformly, at least some of uniformly critique. Um, I, I, uh, Michelle doesn't write about it, but yeah, it's, um, she's kind of shining the light on French hypocrisy.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Yeah, no, and just just in terms of the, the structure of the chapter and, and what you're doing um, intellectually and geographically, I found it so fascinating to um, contrast the you know the uses of this understanding of Islam or Ottoman legal codes, um, with um, the Mormon example, which um, is is an otherness. It's a but it's a it's a whiteness and that's other. Um, and it, it I, I thought that was a really just an amazing, sort of global um, historical insight. Um, and so I, I really I really enjoyed that. Um, so the. the the third chapter uh, focuses on Eau Claire's feminist nu- newspaper, La Citoyenne. Uh, and for the non-French specialist, this is the um, feminine form of the, uh, the noun citizen. So um, citizen, citoyenne, citoyenne, citoyen, um, that's the name of the newspaper. And uh, the newspaper and its, uh, and the alternative empires in her discourse. So how, how does Eau Claire engage imperialism in uh, this paper?
2: So, um, as I mentioned before, it start. its primary focus is you know to advance women's suffrage, but, but then they they look at um, women's lives and uh, status in contexts around the world um, and in mul- multiple imperial contexts. And Eau Claire is, you know, she's very much in the process of writing this, and then she writes uh, of the of the newspaper and then um, she writes, uh, a series of articles that become a book, uh, La Femme Arabe, The Arab Woman, where she is pointing out the aspects of uh, Arab women's lives. And this is, these are Algerian. She's using that term to just cover Algerian women compared to French women's lives. And um, she, Eau Claire believes that she's an assimilationist. She believes that uh, France... Needs to allow Algerians to become French because she believes, and I think she actually believes <laughs> that that everyone really wants to be French, and that for, and Algerian women wanted to be, you know, have the kind of um, to be Frenchified. Uh, she even she lived there. She did all of this kind of investigations. So she never learned Arabic or any other uh, language of, of the region. But she, you know, examined their lives, said, okay, certain things are better. Like there's, they allow divorce. And, um, and Claire also wrote about the importance of uh, women maintaining their names. She was opposed to the patronym and in um, the Algerian uh, culture, she was looking at women maintain their names at marriage. And she saw that as a really significant thing. And so she, you know, kind of looked at the pros and cons and, um, and she just took these imperial, con- you know, imperial concepts, really of you know, kind of racialization and ethnographic categorization and uh, even sexualization, and applied it in these contexts, you know, to to examine and critique their world, and said, look, we can, you know, France has to do better if women, if French women have the vote, if French women have greater equity and equality, we can better the situation for Algeria, and that will be better for everyone. And so there's a lot of similarity with the British feminists and this feminist imperialists in certain ways, except Eau Claire um, is not just instrumentalizing it for her own politics. She, um, I believe, is literally trying to, she literally believes that she can elevate this society by introducing greater gender equity in France, which then will introduce greater gender equity in Algeria, and make uh, make the world better.
1: So chapter four centers on uh, Louise Michelle's exile to new Caledonia, um, the, the penal colony. Um, she's sent there for her role in the Paris commune um, and, and actually chapter five focuses on that as well. So, so tell us about um, Michelle's time in new Caledonia.
2: Okay. So um, the chapters are divided up the, the chapter four, looks at the politics of uh, in everyday colonial encounters and the new caledonian context and then um chapter five looks at the the methods of turning revolutionary ideals into universal practice praxis so um for chapter four so michelle is you know as i, as I mentioned sent to new caledonia with four thousand five hundred other communards and she um, is, you know, while, of course, not being happy to be being exiled, is actually quite interested and excited in this experience. Um, in many ways, she's an eternal optimist. In many ways, she isn't. But so she is sent to the, this prison colony. And she, one of the things that, that she experienced and writes about is the gendered nature of the, the prison colony and, you know, the, the how it intense masculinized masculinized space um, that it is um, and um, you know which is of course not surprising right but but uh, you know she she critiques this and you know and uh, as a way of you know really critiquing this the larger you know patriarchal element in uh, France and in political authority and in, in imperialism and she also you um, she was very. Uh, and she's interested in, in the Kanak people and the Kanak people, the indigenous people in New Caledonia are. Um, they're, they're, the French have, you know, categorized them as Melanesian, and this is sort of uh, constructed category of Polynesians and Melanesians in the in the uh, Pacific, with Polynesians being whiter and Melanesians being blacker, and um, that's where this categorization comes from. And so then, you know, with, uh, sub-Saharan Africans, Melanesians are considered by the French as their lowest colonial subjects because of the you know, racist structure. And, uh, the French think that the Kanak have no culture and, um, really tend to them. And, uh, Michelle disagrees. Um, she becomes interested in the Kanak. She, uh, forms relationships with Kanak men. And um, in particular, uh, Daomi, a man named Daomi becomes her kind of informant. His English is, sorry, his French. Um, His his French is is, is okay. He's pretty good. And, And together they translate and transcribe the indigenous, some indigenous Kanak oral tales. Kanak culture is an oral culture. And Michelle, I mean, she... First of all, she recognizes that the Kanak have a culture. She values the Kanak culture. She values the Kanak as a people. She values their tradition and their spirituality and all of these things that the French are—they're invisible to the French because they choose for them to be invisible to the French. I mean, sorry, the French choose not to, to see or recognize this. And um, and and for Michelle, she wants to represent the Kanak to the French as a people with a culture and and. Yeah, at the same time she does term the Canucks stone age and childlike and uses these kinds of terms um and and when she does translate and transcribe the tales she cleans them up.
1: Yeah, she she takes out the uh, some of the more risque tales right so sort of balderizes the uh yeah.
2: the
1: anything uh, about
2: bodies and yeah. um and also uh, elements of misogyny in the in the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's she's both representing the Canuck to <clears throat> excuse me to in, in hopes that the Kanak and the uh, sorry that the French and the rest of the world will see them more for what they truly are like. But she's also advancing her own politics at the same time. And the tales she publishes them in two. Di- I mean, first, they're published serially in a a. Um, deportee owned French language newspaper in New Caledonia of which there were several. And then in an edition in 1875 um, when she's in New Caledonia, it's published in France. And then she redoes them in 1885 after she's returned to France after the general amnesty for communards. And that second version is um, even more cleaned up and, and the comparisons, I, I speak a lot about the comparisons between the two as a you know, a way of, of of seeing you know what she was looking for, what she was trying to do with these tales, and and part of all of this project too, she's she's when she's writing, she's theorizing the logic of French civilizational rankings, and she's critiquing the extinction narrative in which the French you know say well the French and most other imperialists say that these you know this group of people that we are imperializing is, is they're, they're ex- going to become extinct anyway. So, you know, we are free to take their land and um, you know, physically. Um, which, which
1: is, which is central to settler colonialism. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I think you, you cited a native American scholar who uh, that's
2: argues right. That's right
1: foundational to the settler colonial project.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And um, so she's, you know, contesting this and then she argues that the, Canuck are in some ways more civilized than the French and the French are in some ways more civilized than the the Canuck. And this is really this very, very clear example to me that a a clear anti-imperialist versus pro-imperialist position just is impossible in this context because Michel is... More, Michelle is less racist and less um, invested in hierarchies of uh, of race, of of ethnicity, of education, of of, of culture than um, most anyone I've ever encountered. You know, reading in this period, and and yet she's of her time, right? You cannot escape your time, and I think that this is a really interesting and important thing that we cannot say, oh, she's not really anti-imperialist by our standards. Well, no, she's not. But um, it's you know, how do you define that? And that there just is no clear bina-
1: binary. Is it... Does she shade into sort of noble savage discourse?
2: Um, Sort of. You know, I mean, you could look at it this way, yes, but not... I mean, in, in, in some ways, she's a little bit more clear-eyed than that. I mean, because she really, I mean, she's a kind of a mystical person in certain ways. And she really, um, you know, admires their connection to the earth. Um, and, you know, and that can also, you know, of course, play into a noble savage kind of thing, but it's, it's more balanced because she's, she's, what she's saying is that like children, they just need to be educated. They need some of the benefits. I mean, you know, as I'll, I'll talk about with the next chapter, Michelle is, a, is an educator, she's trained as a teacher, um, developing anarchist ped- pedagogy is central to her thought and writing th- for decades. And a lot of Kanak ideas then come into that because she recognizes that they have some better kind of interhuman and inter, um, you know, species relationships, like, you know, recognizing like the, the life and spirituality and trees and th- this kind of thing that Western culture doesn't recognize. So um, there's some idealization, but it's um, a little more clear-eyed, I think, in many ways.
1: Well, let's get into um, chapter five then, uh, which is universal language, universal education, universal revolution. And here you really get into uh, some of the things that uh, Louise Michel is doing in terms of um, uh, analyzing language and, and promoting a, a unifying language, and and also her educational and and revolutionary uh, work in in New Caledonia. So
2: she is as part of her. So she has this universal ideal, and it, it is not French universalism. It is an anarchist universalism that um, she is looking. To break down barriers between peoples, and one that she thinks is really significant is language, and so she's interested in universal language, and she's not the only person inter- inter- interested in universal language in this period. This is the period where Esperanto develops as a uni- as a universal language, and Volopuk and there are all these other universal languages of which i knew nothing about before doing this research which is really really fascinating and oh,
1: this I, idea. Loved, I loved love to reading that section of the book and it came it it came as a real surprise to me i'm like oh but this it, it, it's just fabulous and um yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thanks
2: yeah i mean this you know the stuff with the language and then the the, the, the language in the, the looking for a universal language and then also her, her use of linguistics was quite a surprise to me and it involves a kind of a deep dive in in uh, areas that you know I had no knowledge, real knowledge about before. But she to to she's looking for an originary language also, so it's sort of a two pronged thing. So the Kanak have twenty six languages, still have twenty six languages. Um, New Caledonia is an archipelago, and uh, so different languages are spoken in. Different islands, and then also in different areas of the grand Terre, the, the the big the main the main main island, but they use uh, a trade language called Bichele um, to communicate with amongst themselves and also also with with traders. and it was originally English based and with some Chinese and Portuguese and different Kanak languages and then became French based by the nineteenth century. And so she sees this. As a real, an organic language, you know. In contrast, she's not opposed to Esperanto, but she sees those language, constructed languages as inorganic and as um, Bislama is being used, and she thinks that this is an extraordinary ideal. And when she's, you know, seeing this, she's also then you know doing this search for original human language, and that she's she is a self-trained. Linguist. She's also a self-trained ethnographer. Um, she just, you know, she continually has books sent to her in, in, New, in New Caledonia. It takes a long time to get there, but she gets a lot of them. And uh, so in looking for the original human language, she had this black notebook, which when I started doing this research, the International Institute for Social History actually let me hold and use. And then later it was digitized and I could no longer do that. So that was, you know, for... For, for those of us who love this stuff, it was very exciting to have heard her notebook, and in the notebook are pages and pages of comparative linguistics and language fragments. She's just you know she is comparing words and phrases from dozens of languages and talking about language groups in this search for an original human language. You know, at the same time that she's really valorizing the existence of this um, kind of universal language.
1: Yeah, so you know, as as a scholar of imperialism, I find I found that just so fascinating because she's this sort of left wing version of um, British orientalists uh, a century earlier in India, like uh, um, India Jones and and some of these other scholars who are trying to you know doing these linguistic investigations. And here here is coming from a very different perspective with a different um, well, relationship to empire and so forth as I, I I just found that whole language section fascinating. What um what does she do in terms of education and um, um developing an anarchist anarchist pedagogy in uh, in New Caledonia?
2: Well, um, as I mentioned, she was trained as a teacher. She uh, taught starting in the eighteen sixties in Paris, and she was consistently developing a more equitable. Pedagogy with you know a very strong feminist and um, class-based equity uh, kind of a, a program and and in you know in, in the Paris Commune she was involved in um, redeveloping education an educational program so that it managed for mandatory secular education she's intensely anti-clerical they're all intensely anti-clerical except for Odoir, who's intensely clerical <laughs> so but this is this is really um, you know, this is, it's really significant th- a thing for her. And so in, in New Caledonia, she is learning again, you know, from this, you know, what we would call indigenous ways of knowing. And she's trying to integrate this into her pedagogy. And she, she, uh, she's in New Caledonia for sever- seven years. And for the last few years, she's allowed to just live in the capital, Noumea, as opposed to in the, uh, the prison it was an outdoor prison like a prison without walls um some prisoners were in actual physical enclosures, and she wasn't um well, they, they, I, they were like, out
1: on a on a peninsula right
2: right exactly they were out on a peninsula yeah. which was guarded at the end and well yeah. much of of the grand of new caledonia is quite lush um this was a very arid peninsula and they were sort of you know these urban these parisian revolutionaries were kind of dumped there and like okay you know Go ahead and survive, and the and the way she met Kanak was that Kanak served to sort of you know they'd come and sell stuff right they and they could you know interact in in that way and um you know in living living there uh, and this is you know the context in which she's really you know uh, developing her critique of of you know the the uh, gendered nature of the prison colony et cetera, and you know the whole power power structures but um the French want to uh pardon her pretty early on because she's, she's become a little too heroic (laughs) and people, you know, really, you know, she would like, they would like her to kind of come back and then sort of, they think disappear, but she refuses to return to France until there's a general amnesty for everyone. So, and that's 1880. So for the few years before that, she's allowed to live in the capital um, and open a, a school for the children of French colonizers, um, colonists. And, um, but on Sundays, she teaches the Kanak, and the French government does not want this to happen, and so she like teaches them off, you know, in the bush, and you know, and but it, she's teaching the Kanak, and she's learning from the Kanak, and this is what she's talking about in developing this, uh, this this kind of pedagogy, and this is where she's saying that you know to help, kind of, elevate them in their civilizational development, you know, help them climb the civilizational ladder a little Western education would be beneficial. And again, this comes back to this, you know, impossibility of the anti-imperial pro-imperial binary, that it's much more complex and often contradictory than that. And, but you know, after her time in the commune, she continues to develop the anarchist pedagogy. She opens an anarchist school. She lives in London for a, a long time because the French police harass her nonstop. And um, she's many other uh, um French leftists live in London, especially in the 1890s. She opens an international school, and these you know kind of continues to develop these ideas. And then at the end of her life, when she goes to Algeria, she's very much focusing on. She wants to talk to teachers because she feels that education is the way to bring about you know an anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist revolution.
1: And, and what's her role in um, 1878 in the Kanak um, uprising?
2: So, so the 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 Canuck rise up in 1878 in a, in a really highly coordinated sophisticated uprising against the French they had attacked uh, the French and risen up against the French multiple times over the decades but then they didn't for several years and it seems fairly clear that they were planning this I I, I don't have you know sources on this but other scholars have have also you know said this and um, it's a surprise and brutal attack. And uh, and the French respond with massive force. And many of the communards side with the French. And for the last week of the Paris Commune, it's 72 day revolutionary civil war. The final week is a brutal bloodbath in which the French army slaughters 15 to 20,000 Parisians in the streets. And then these communards are the people who couldn't escape and who or who weren't uh, slaughtered and were then sent to New Caledonia. So their friends and comrades and family members have been slaughtered by the French government, and they, they've been shipped, you know, um, a four-month sea voyage away. And yet, when the Kanak rise up and the French are like, you know, we are, you know, going to defend our right to be here, many of the communards side with the French. And some even fight with the French because they choose whiteness and, you know, quote, unquote, civilization over blackness and what they see as savagery. And Michelle does not. She Some of the other communards are sort of a little soft on it at the beginning, especially. Well, you know, I mean, it's understanding that they're rising up. But Michelle is the only one who consistently supports the Kanak against the French. Um, there's a anonymous uh, publication, at, like more than a decade later, that you know says that really basically says Michelle was right, but then it's it's a uh, it's anonymous and it's also a sort of an odd thing that really misinterprets her role and things. But but aside from that sort of anonymous person, that really is, there are some communists later who are say you know say well imperialism is bad and. Um, that's by the mid mid 1880s and into the 1890s, anti imperialism is a significant force, in, you know, in, in the Third Republic, but not in the 18, not in 1878 in, in New Caledonia. And um, she, you know, in her time in New Caledonia, she you know encounters these Algerian Kabyle who are also exiled there after their 1871 upri- uprising many of whom also side with the French against the Kanak. You know, it's, uh, and, yeah. and many of these. I found, deal- I found
1: that really fascinating.
2: Yes. Yes. And many of them are elites and, you know, perhaps there's something in, in that kind of alliance. You know, and then ultimately, um, you know, as I mentioned, she, she's able to travel to Algeria and, in uh, 1904, she really just—I mean, she, she, and Manx travel and speak, travel and speak, all you know around France and and then in England and Belgium, and and then she ultimately makes us makes it to Algeria because she very much believes that her embodied presence there will make a difference in being able to bring about an anti-imperial, anti-capitalist, anti-religious um, uprising.
1: Hmm. Wait, what year did she die? In
2: 1904.
1: 1904. Yeah. So no
2: 190 oh, sorry, January of
1: 1905. Oh, five. yeah. The G- just race. after yeah. the Algeria trip. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. with she yeah. she dies in Marseille. She comes back and she she she's already quite ill and it's just I mean it was uh they just kept going from city to city. She traveled with a a young anarchist, um, Ernest Giraud. and it was a a really really packed schedule and um she was
1: not young yeah yeah so the, the last full chapter in the book is uh, entitled familiar stranger the figure of the Jew in in um, scare, scare quotes um how did the image of um, the Jew as other uh, factor into this history of feminism and Empire
2: so the so Jews were both in France and in Empire right and so there is this um, that there are they were the familiar stranger, right? They go into, I mean, Jews are all over. And um, so there's a familiarity and a preconceived idea already amongst these women, amongst French people about Jews mm-hmm. and what Jews were like um, at home. And then abroad, it's a, an orientalized version. And the orientalized version of the Jew is also present in the, the French uh, metropole. And and so this was not something I was looking for in doing this research. It was just, you know, as I was doing this research, I kept seeing the way that the figure of the Jew appeared in all sorts of different places in um, the politics and the arguments, especially of Eau-Droid and then of Eau-Claire in different ways. And then ultimately in Michel. So they all wrote about Jews in imperial context and in French, all three. So, Audouin, Eau Michel. You know, um, and what I saw was the further right to their class politics, the, the more they adhere to the status quo, the less tolerance they had of others. So, Audouin is intensely anti Semitic. Um, Eau instrumentalizes anti Semitism to advance her politics. And um, Michelle is believes that uh, capitalism is the problem, and it deforms anyone, whether you're a Christian or a Jew. And she's anti-religion, anti-capitalist, and anti anti-Semitism. So, um, and they all use this idea of Jewish difference to foster their own agenda. And this is a something that Lisa Silverman has um, written about in the, in the context of s- Central Europe. But I, th- I found it really useful the idea that you know, Jewish difference is something that's socially constructed and historically specific. It's like how the Jew is constructed as not the the proper Christian ma- masculinity or not the proper uh, Christian femininity. And, you know, it's, it's this, this other. So Edward had a very racialized and gendered version of the figure of the Jew and anti-Semitism like interwove her liberalism and her elite class politics and, um, a lot of her anti Semitism is Catholic based, um, blaming Jews for rejecting Christ. She speaks about Jews and uh, writes about uh, Jews in Constantinople, Jews in Jerusalem, Jews in Russia. Um, she d- describes them as dirty, dishonest. Um, Jewish men is feminized, Jewish women is highly sexualized. Uh, she argues that despite often looking poor, uh, that all Jews have basically caves, the quote is caves filled with gold that they hide their wealth and that, that all Jews have this wealth. They hide their wealth because they're so cheap that they, you know, don't even, uh, spend it on themselves. And, um, and this is something, I mean, this just interweaves so many of her arguments and, uh, in this, you know, in imperial context, again, in you know, describing the, the filthiness of of you know, impoverished people, but attributing it to being Jews. And Eau Claire, um, she kind of is willing to uh, accept most any ally to advance women's suffrage. And she uses the figure of the Jew as a, a she instrumentalizes anti-Semitism for her own um, political purposes to uh advance her re- Republican politics. And um, she p- basically panders to anti-Republican anti-Semitism, even though she's a, a, a re- such a, a strong Republican. And one of the ways she does this is uh, she publishes in Edouard Durmont's La Libre Parole, this intensely anti-Semitic newspaper. Um, and she's willing to write about the, about Jews as foreign, um, as interlopers. She, she takes advantage of, she kind of piggybacks on the xenophobia. She talks about, um, how, and she does this as a way of, of, of critiquing French gender hierarchies, um, and the Napoleonic code, you know, for example, she says that a German man, a German Jewish man could, you know, come to France and become a citizen and then, you know, vote. And, uh, a, French woman. And she's like, she says, we daughters of Joan of Arc you know, can never, can never vote, can never, you know, be a, have this kind of citizenship. And so she, you know, there's a soft kind of anti-Semitism and then sometimes more overt. And then finally, Michelle is not an anti-Semite. Um, she's a, 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 a Um She, though well, that's, it's, it, I don't think I have time to go to that, but it's a really interesting complex thing where many of her uh, critics said she wasn't, but um, because of her alliance with, um, um, with some, not, some, some uh, anti-Dreyfus sides. Anyway. So she, she argues that capitalism created the idea of the Jew and that it defigures the capitalism disfigures everyone. And, she wrote a novel called Le Clac'," in which it almost seems anti-Semitic because she is really using these tropes of the rich and insensitive and exploitative Jew. but then there's the then the revolution comes and it's led by this Jewish man's son and daughter who read Kropotkin and who bring these ideas of anarchism and and then in the new world, the Their father, the capitalist, the Jew, realizes that in his youth he was a poet, he had sensitivity, he cared and capitalism had deformed him and in the new world. and then the son dies and the daughter br- really brings the revolution. She leads the revolution and the father, you know stops being a exploitative capitalist and comes back to his true self. And so that you know it's not a, it's not as so though Jews are essentially. Gradient exploitative. It's that like capitalism creates them that way, which at the same time is saying that Jews at that time were, you know, capitalist Jews were exploitative. So it's extremely complex.
1: Yeah. So um, you've been really generous with your time, but I've got uh, two more questions before I let you go. Um, first, can you suggest two books for the listeners?
2: Sure. One um, book I am. <laughs> Uh, really excited about um is uh, Jennifer boitin's forthcoming book Undesirable: Passionate Mobility and Women's Defiance of French Colonial Policing 1919-1952 and that's coming out with uh University of Chicago Press in November
1: and that's, and then that's our the... that's our colleague Jennifer Boitin.
2: Yes, Jennifer Boitin, Yes, it's uh, I've read bits of it and it's brilliant. And and then another book that I I, I found really groundbreaking and and um, and wonderful and important is um Rachel Mesh's Before Trans, Three Gender Stories from Nineteenth Century France. And it's published by Stanford.
1: Mm-hmm. hmm Yep, yeah, fantastic. Great. And um finally, what are you working on now? And and what can we hope to see from you next?
2: I'm working on um, a book on names, on personal names. And uh, I'm interested in the significance and ne- meaning that names have to individuals and groups, you know, first names and last names, and the the ways in which the state and religion are interested in controlling and monitoring names, and the interaction between uh, individuals and groups and and the state and um, you know forces of authority. Um, I uh, published a piece from this several years ago about feminist opposition to the patronym in 19th century France. I alluded to that to a that little bit about Hubertino uh, Claire which, um, and, uh, and then this, I, I also look at the way that, um, the Napoleonic state, uh, mandated that all children be named after, uh, heroes from antiquity or, um, saints on the Catholic calendar, and you know what that meant, and then um, the way that certain revolutionaries and, and uh, radicals would challenge that. And um, I look at revolutionary naming in in. Uh, the French revolution, but also in the Russian revolution and some other comparative contexts, the way that people gave children names, like in the Russian revolution, naming children, things like, you know, atheist, electrification, um, Marx uh, for girls, Lenina, um, putting your politics on a child. so, you know, what does that mean, um, you know, for their child and, and in the larger political context. And then also, um, the French, uh, State, manda- state mandating under Napoleon that all Jews take permanent last names as a way of assimilating and um, Jews, it, which doesn't really, you know, it's a way of assimilating Jews, but also marking them. And, um, and then at the end of the 19th century, the French state also did this with Algerian Muslims demanding that they take permanent last names instead of their traditional naming structures. And the differences in the, in this, and, and also in the middle, sorry, in the middle of the century, the way that the state mandated that formerly enslaved people in Les Antilles and the Antilles uh, were given last names. So what names people were given, the ways in which that they were allowed choice, the, the ways that it, uh, in the uh, Caribbean context and in the Algerian context, they were also often given intensely insulting and offensive names, you know, what that meant. Um, so looking at the way this, you uh, changed over time so these are these are those are kind of three different sections of the book but um it this overall idea of the significance of of personal names first and last names you know for individuals and for the state is a, it's a big question <laughs> it's a big yeah, project no, that's, yeah that's yeah.
1: fascinating I, I love that I'll, just a little personal uh anecdote. Um, one of my closest friends um, since high school he's still still a very close friend his, um, uh, his father was born in the Philippines in, uh, during the Japanese occupation and his parents named him Mussolini and it's uh, Mus- Mu- Mussolini Ignacio. Okay, and, so
2: this uh, is this is a this is exactly what I'm talking about. That's that's a and that's all, something for for us for a, a two year old to carry, <laughs> or, or a 40 year old.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And, the, and this is the thing. It is. It is. It is extraordinary about this, you know, how people put their politics on their child. And, and you know, I, I just find it a completely fascinating thing in terms of political movements, individuals within movements, and and just you know, the kind of personal experience of bearing that name.
1: Oh, what a, what a great project. What a fantastic Thanks. project. Well, hey, Carolyn Eichner, uh, thank you so much for chatting with me today.
2: Thank you very much, Mike. I've really, really enjoyed it.
1: So this has been a conversation with Professor Carolyn Eichner of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee about Feminism's Empire, out with Cornell in 2022. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.